welcome to our continuing educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities and international law and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare and securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank False Claims Act whistleblower claims, which remain under seal. Ms. Rose holds an MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt University and a law degree from Stetson University College of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award and the William F. Blues Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is currently licensed in Texas, and currently she is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's Government Relations Committee, the co-editor co and the American Health, sorry, the co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for Health Care Entities, second edition, as well as co-author of the books, The ABCs of ACOs and What Are International Business Considerations. She has been named consecutively to the Texas Bar College, the National Women Trial Lawyers Association's Top 25, and Houstonia Magazine's Top Lawyers for Healthcare. Ms. Rose is an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. Before we begin, I would like to mention that FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals. And every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. Today, our team is turning the spotlight on Super Ninja Jean Bassford, Human Resources Generalist at Maine Nephrology Associates. Jean says, I love working for a medical practice with such a caring staff, both clinical and non-clinical. We all work hard to make things run as smoothly as possible so our providers can give the best possible care to our patients. Congratulations, Jean. Our team is very honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There's no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. So Rachel, a very, very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. 
Catherine, Happy New Year to you, and thank you for having me. It is an interesting time, as we all know, a time of change, and HIPAA is definitely no exception to the general rule. Absolutely. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. Okay, so are we ready? We are ready. All right. So, again, thank you, First Healthcare Compliance, for having me here to present today. My topic is HIPAA in the time of COVID-19, recent updates and enforcement actions. The requisite disclosure appears on your screen. The information is not meant to constitute legal advice. You need to consult a lawyer for advice on a specific situation. Additionally, because the information is being presented in a very dynamic time, the information is presented, which is current as of the initial date of this presentation. Participants are encouraged to check government and other relevant websites for the most up-to-date information. So, as many of you know, I typically begin my programs with a few headline highlights. And one headline highlight is the OCR director, Severino, concluded his term in the latter part of January, and March Bell has been named the acting OCR director. One item that continues to be a focus are the OCR privacy initiatives, and that specifically relates to enforcement actions regarding privacy rule violations. Another item is the proposed changes to the privacy rule, in which was published in December of 2020. And this proposed change, there are many changes, but encompasses 350 pages. So it's lengthy. But one, one of the key items is better coordination of patient care. And another item is better access for patients to their health information. So today, I'm going to begin with a quick snippet on COVID-19, allocation of resources, and quarantine. From there, we'll get into terms you need to know in relation to HIPAA, some of the bulletins that we've seen come out, as well as enforcement discretion. From there, we'll dovetail into enforcement actions and what HHS just published towards the end of January regarding its enforcement discretion. Now, its enforcement discretion is not new, but from time to time, as we've seen throughout the pandemic, they release another specific bulletin regarding their ability to use their enforcement discretion in certain situations. HIPAA and disclosures of communicable diseases, specifically in the workplace. I've had this arise in my practice, and I think it's a very good area to hone in on because it's not just HIPAA. It encompasses a lot of other laws and a lot of other government agencies. Teleworker versus telehealth considerations. These two areas remain a hot spot for cyber attacks, as well as compliance, and it's something that should be beneficial 
I'll round it out with compliance nuggets and then takeaways and questions. So let's begin with COVID-19. As we all know, COVID-19 or COB-19 was discovered in late 2019 in China. In March of 2020, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic, which is a global outbreak of a disease. Shortly thereafter, the President of the United States declared a national emergency, which enabled the United States agencies within the federal government, as well as some state agencies, to begin to enact really emergency protocols, which we've seen, and some of them I've actually highlighted throughout the presentation here today. Basically, the CDC uses the Pandemic Severity Assessment Framework to determine the impact of the pandemic. And for anyone who watches the news or reads online or a paper, everyone probably knows that the death toll in, in the United States alone is approaching 500,000. The clinical severity is something that's included as well as the transmissibility or how easily the pandemic virus spreads from person to person. Both of these items are notable in light of the new strains that have been detected worldwide. So the three strains that NIH and CDC have primarily been focused on are a strain out of the UK, a strain out of South Africa, and a strain out of Brazil. And those have been found to have a higher incidence of transmissibility, although the clinical severity has not fully been established. But it's believed that even though it's more highly transmissible, that the signs, symptoms, and the residual medical impact is no different than what we're currently seeing. Healthcare and allocation of resources. For those of you who have been focused on California and the Los Angeles area, this really has become highlighted because of the hospital beds, the limited numbers, and then who gets those beds. So as you know, I teach bioethics to medical students and I've done that for eight years. And this is something that we talk about throughout the semester in bioethics, and that's allocation of resources. So first and foremost, universal precautions should continue to be utilized by all healthcare workers. And typically universal precautions are washing your hands, wearing a mask, wearing gloves, things of that nature. Now with COVID, there was an increased requirement of an N95 mask which has a higher filter rate for the transmission of any disease, really. But when I worked in the hospital during college, I would have to wear the N95 masks whenever I went into a room, for example, with a patient who had a communicable disease such as TB or hepatitis C, things of that nature. That's no different than what has been implemented here. Concepts related to resource allocation, there are four primary items. The first is libertarian. Everyone should receive healthcare benefits in proportion to what he or she will pay for. 
Another view is egalitarian. Everyone should receive healthcare benefits in equal proportion to his or her medical needs. Basic decent minimum, everyone should receive healthcare benefits in proportion to his or her basic medical needs. But beyond that, everyone should receive healthcare benefits in equal proportion to what he or she will pay. And then there's social justice, and that's the broad distribution of benefits and burdens in society. So if you think about the pandemic and what we are dealing with across the treatment and the clinical spectrum, especially in hospitals, you pretty much are dealing with two concepts. One is egalitarianism, that everyone should receive healthcare benefits in equal proportion to his or her medical needs. Social justice, we're seeing more with the vaccine, whereby everyone who is eligible to get the vaccine, and by eligible, I'm not talking about race or religion or socioeconomic class or sex. I'm talking about A, do they have an allergic reaction? And then the other part of that is, are there checkpoints being set up uh, throughout rural areas, for example, and inner city areas, and then throughout the suburbs as well? So it's just, again, a broad distribution of benefits. It could also be said that testing in general also reflects social justice along those lines. So when a finite number of resources exist, such as ventilators or even hospital beds in this case, then the allocation of resources needs to be made based on a variety of factors. And this isn't anything new. If you think about battlefield medicine or some of the tragedies that have occurred in our country, for example, the Oklahoma City bombing or the Mandalay Bay shooting in Las Vegas, we had a large number of people who needed access to the same resources. So what happens is you have to triage people. And one of the steps in triage that needs to be considered is who is the most likely to make it if we're using these resources. Now, some people say that, oh, it's just age. That's not true. You could have a 20-year-old heroin addict that is much worse, worse off physically than an octogenarian. And so it's not solely based on a person's age. And that's something that I just wanted to be clear about. So as we move into more of the HIPAA-targeted items, as well as can I disclose whether or not an employee has COVID, et cetera, there are some key terms, and I wanted to make sure everyone was on the same page. So first, reasonable. What does reasonable mean? It means agreeable to reason, just, or proper, ordinary or usual. For the lawyers who are listening to this program, as we know, the standard that's typically utilized in front of a jury is the reasonable person standard. What would a reasonable person do? Or if it's a physician, what is a similarly situated reasonable physician going to be doing under those circumstances? Another key word is discretion. And I specifically pulled from Black's Law Dictionary the definition as it applies to public functionaries. And here, discretion means a power or right conferred upon them by law. 
of acting officially in certain circumstances according to the dictates of their own judgment and conscience, uncontrolled by the judgment or conscience of others. So it would almost, to me, seem like a de novo review, so to speak, of any given situation. And that's what we're going to see in a couple of the bulletins that HHS has released, including the enforcement discretion bulletin that was released in January of 2021. Lastly, I want to address good faith. It encompasses an honest belief, the absence of malice, and the absence of a design to defraud or to seek an unconscionable advantage. So what is it about enforcement actions and enforcement discretions that I wanted to make everyone aware of? Well, first and foremost, on January the 19th of 2021, HHS made the following announcement. The notification of enforcement discretion for use of online or web-based scheduling applications for the scheduling of COVID-19 vaccination appointments. So that is the subject of this particular bulletin. HHS will exercise its enforcement discretion and will not necessarily impose penalties for violations of HIPAA rules on covered healthcare providers or their business associates in connection with the good faith use of online or web-based scheduling applications collectively known as WBSAs for the scheduling of individual appointments for COVID-19 vaccinations during the COVID-19 nationwide public health emergency. It applies to covered entities and business associates, and this exercise of enforcement discretion, although it was made effective immediately, is also retroactive to December 11th of 2020. So what are web-based scheduling applications? Well, there are three bullet points that I really want to highlight here. First, a WBSA is a non-public facing online or web-based application that provides scheduling of individual appointments for services in connection with large-scale COVID-19 vaccination. So let's break this down. This non-public-facing item is key because it also was something we saw in the spring of 2020 in relation to telehealth. So that's something that everyone in healthcare should be very familiar with now. The second part is, if you notice, it only applies to the scheduling of individual appointments for services in connection with large-scale COVID-19 vaccination. So this does not apply across the board. This is a very specific carve-out by OCR. So that's something to be very, very conscious of. Next, non-public facing means an application as a default allows only the intended parties, such as a covered healthcare provider, the individual or personal representative scheduling the appointment, and a WBSA workforce member if needed to provide technical support. 
basically to access data created, received, maintained, or transmitted by the WBSA. So this is important because even though it says any non-public facing, it's key for two reasons. First, we have seen OCR actions. There was one against a cardiology group several years ago when their calendar was made public so that anyone could see who had appointments, who they were scheduled with, et cetera, et cetera. That clearly is public facing, which is still unacceptable under this particular bulletin. Another key item was a recent settlement with a practice in Georgia whereby there was a ransomware attack and the attackers said, please pay the money or we're going to put this on the web. Well, the, the attackers already put the money or put the PHI on the web. So that's something that you don't want to make yourself more liable or create more risk than you have to. And quite frankly, there are a number of applications which have been vetted that have at least 256-bit encryption that can provide reassurance for a practice, a hospital, a public health service. And from my perspective, I wouldn't take the risk of using something that was generally available that didn't meet the HIPAA security standards. WBSA does not include technology that connects directly to electronic health record systems used by covered entities. This clearly makes sense because in this situation, we know that a business associate agreement has to exist between an electronic health record company and a covered entity, including providers. So giving a one-off and letting a non-vetted app connect with your system, that only invites potential trouble. So what are some of the key takeaways? Well, although OCR is exercising enforcement discretion, the notification encourages the use of reasonable, and again, you'll see me highlight some of our definition words within this slide, safeguards to protect the privacy and security of individuals' protected health information, such as using the minimum necessary protected health information, encryption technology, and enabling all privacy settings. This is not a high bar here. So if you are unsure as to what to do, I'm sure that the geniuses at the Apple Bar or someone at Best Buy could even assist with that. What would I recommend in terms of the minimum necessary? You want perhaps a first initial and a last name. You may want the year that they were born, and then the time of their vaccine. Again, this is very narrowly tailored to COVID-19 vaccine appointments. It doesn't apply to anything else, as you saw there. And by COVID-19 vaccine appointments, you need to read the bulletin, and I put it up there previously, but make sure that you're fitting within that. It's not as broad as telehealth. It's not as broad as some of the other waivers or bulletins that we've seen. So you absolutely need to make sure that the application that you're using satisfies 
from my perspective, the HIPAA regulations, if you're going to use it for anything else other than scheduling vaccine appointments. So as a matter of enforcement discretion, the HHS Office for Civil Rights will not impose penalties for non-compliance with regulatory requirements under the HIPAA rules against covered healthcare providers or their business associates in connection with the good faith use, again, there's one of our key terms, of online or web-based scheduling applications for the scheduling of individual appointments for COVID-19 vaccinations during the COVID-19 nationwide public health emergency. The vendors of such applications may not be aware that HIPAA-covered entities or healthcare providers are using their products to create, receive, maintain, or transmit protected health information and that a WBSA vendor may, as a result, meet the definition of a business associate under the HIPAA rules. So it's no doubt that COVID treatment does fall under it, but again, you wanna narrowly curtail this, and it's really not that much work to go and search for a web-based application that, in fact, meets the HIPAA parameters. From there, I wanted to delve into some very recent enforcement actions by OCR. The first is a cyber attack breach, which was held to be a security rule violation. The settlement was for $5.1 million with over 9.3 million people affected, as well as a corrective action plan. This settlement was announced in January of 2021. On September the 9th, 2015, Excellus Health Plan filed a breach report stating that cyber attackers had gained unauthorized access to its information technology systems. This is unconscionable, the part that's in bold and in blue. They had been mulling around there for over a year and a half. How does that happen? How do you not have the detection software in there. Here, the hackers installed malware and conducted reconnaissance, which is not uncommon, that ultimately resulted in impermissible disclosures of PHI of more than 9.3 million individuals. This included their names, addresses, date of birth, social security number, even bank account information, and health plan. So this was pretty severe in terms of the types of sensitive, personally identifiable information which were disclosed. OCR's investigation found potential violations of the HIPAA rules, including a failure to conduct an enterprise-wide risk analysis and failures to implement, implement risk management, information system activity review, and access controls. So what about the Banner Health Settlement? Well, first we have the Right of Access Initiative. Then we have a settlement where there was a $200,000 monetary penalty plus a corrective action plan. Now, Banner Health is a very large healthcare system. And here, OCR received two complaints filed against Banner Health ACE entities alleging violations of the HIPAA right of access standard. So that falls under the privacy rule. 
The first complaint alleged that the individual requested access to her medical records in December 2017 and did not receive the records until May of 2018. The second complaint alleged that the individual requested access to an electronic copy of his records in September 2019, and it was way beyond the typical 30-day period that an entity has. I would say the average is 45 days because if records are kept off-site or if for whatever reason, for example, during COVID there might be a backlog, the covered entity or the business associate absolutely has the obligation to contact the patient or the patient's representative and say, we've received this, we need 30 more days and under the law, they have the ability to do that. But here, that clearly wasn't done. And basically, OCR determined that Banner failed to provide a timely access to the requested medical records, which were potential violations of the HIPAA right of access standard. Another recent enforcement action is, again, a privacy rule right of access initiative action. Here, the settlement was 36,000 and also included a two-year corrective action plan. In April 2019, a patient filed a complaint with OCR indicating that he had requested but was denied access to his medical records. In May of 2019, OCR provided technical assistance to Elite. Still, in October 2019, the same patient filed a second complaint indicated that he still had not received his medical records. In May 2020, over a year after the initial request, the patient finally received a copy of his medical records. Again, this is unacceptable and there should be some type of notification process within the EHR so that the medical records department or HIM department can stay on top of these types of requests. Because as we've seen, OCR is not discriminating between the size of the entity. They are looking at large entities and small entities when it comes to a patient's right of access. Another example of the privacy rule right of access violation occurred at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. There, the settlement was for 65,000 plus a two-year corrective action plan. Once again, in May 2019, OCR received a complaint that the medical center failed to respond to a patient's request in February, requesting an electronic copy of her medical records. I'm going to sidestep here because there was an important decision which came out of the D.C. Circuit uh, Court, District Court in D.C., and then the Circuit Court. That basically said, it's called the SIOC decision, and it's on OCR's website. And it has to do with the amount that can be charged to a patient. It also delves into the High Tech Act and the ability of a patient to request electronic copies. And another item to read in conjunction with the FIOX case 
is the 21st Century Cures Act and those two final rules which were published in the Federal Register at the beginning of May of 2020. So there's a lot to digest in this one bullet and it's something that I would recommend looking at closely. The patient ultimately received her medical records in August of 2019. So she requested it in February and filed a complaint. Once again, right, in May we see this happening and then it's not for approximately seven months that the patient finally received her medical records. So now let's delve into another hot topic area in terms of not only the COVID vaccine, but also COVID testing and whether or not a person's, I'll, I will call it COVID status, can be disclosed. Specifically, I wanted to look at HIPAA, OSHA, and the American with Disabilities Act in relation to public health disclosures. So what are some workplace disclosures? Well, first, does a disclosure of a COVID-19 diagnosis in the workplace constitute a HIPAA violation or violation of another law, such as a state law or the Federal Trade Commission breach notification rule? My favorite answer is it depends. First and foremost, one most all must always consider the specific facts and circumstances surrounding any given event. Secondly, uh, for example, was a workforce member being treated at his or her place of work and did another employee wrongfully access the records? That is a cardinal no-no and in fact, that wrongful access of the records as we have seen on a regular basis that can lead to criminal violations. One example was a physician at UCLA, and in fact, it was one of the first criminal HIPAA violations. But this physician was going in and looking at the medical records of celebrities, as well as his fellow colleagues, and ultimately was found criminally liable. I recently read a announcement from the Eastern District of Texas where they criminally prosecuted individuals, not only for the wrongful access of patient medical records, but then selling those patient medical records. So this is something that I cannot enforce strongly enough as a deterrent for your workforce members not to go in if you're not on the care team or you don't have a legitimate business purpose for going in there. So whether you're in medical records and you need to review the records to submit a bill, or if you're in charge of scheduling and you need to see how many patients and nurses handling, things of that nature, it still doesn't mean that you need to go into all of the details of a medical record. Perhaps the list could be printed and that might be all that's necessary. So who is under the legal umbrella? I always state this up front just because some people are new to HIPAA and others are definitely more seasoned, but it kind of puts everyone on the same page. Under federal HIPAA, there are three main buckets. There's covered entities who are in privity of contract with business associates. Again, that business associate agreement is required between a covered entity and a business associate. 
And then you have business associates in privity of contract with subcontractors. And again, a business associate agreement is required here. Under Texas House Bill 300, there are different definitions of a covered entity. And basically in Texas, this House Bill stems back to September 1 of 2012 and was codified in both the Texas Health and Safety Code as well as the Texas Business and Commerce Code. And it encompasses anyone who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information. Then you have the Federal Trade Commission, and that fills the gap, basically, of the federal HIPAA definitions for anyone who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits PHI. And by that, I mean that the Federal Trade Commission has its own breach notification rule, but it's also important to note that the Federal Trade Commission has taken enforcement action against covered entities as well, such as CVS, Rite Aid, and Henry Sheen Dental. So all of those, because a violation of HIPAA falls under the umbrella of consumer rights and consumer protection, that's where the Federal Trade Commission comes in. And this has been upheld by various U.S. district courts as well as administrative law judges that under the Federal Trade Commission Act, Title V, that's where their authority comes from. So here's the quick skinny on the legislative history related to HIPAA. HIPAA goes back to 96. In 2002, we have what I always call the final privacy rule because the privacy rule actually was published in the Federal Register in December of 2000 and became effective in January of 2001. In 2003, we see the security rule published in the Federal Register. However, it did not require implementation until 2005. Then we have a little bit of a gap here between 2005 and 2009. One important distinction that I want to note between the privacy rule and the security rule is that the privacy rule applies to all forms of protected health information, while the security rule only applies to electronic protected health information. From there, in 2009, we have the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act. And there we see a lot of different changes coming down the pike. And one Fifth Circuit opinion that is worth the read because high tech and the breach notification rule specifically relate to those tiered categories of enforcement is the MD Anderson case. And basically the Fifth Circuit overturned the district court which ruled in favor of HHS and instead ruled in favor of MD Anderson. They had a HIPAA breach and basically what the court said was that HHS overstepped its bounds in terms of its enforcement discretion within the framework of the breach notification rule and the tiered penalties which are available. So it's not a long opinion by the Fifth Circuit, but it's very recent within the last 30 days and it is definitely worth the read. In 2010, the privacy and security proposed regulations came about and 
a few years later, we see the final omnibus rule. And that's found at 78 Federal Register 5566, and it was actually published on January the 25th of 2013. The Federal Trade Commission, I mentioned that it has its own breach notification rule. That's been around for quite some time, and that enforcement began in February of 2010. So again, this has been around for over a decade, and it's something that is always a good reminder because some entities that I've come across in my practice have said, well, we don't fit the definition of a covered entity or a business associate, so we have no liability. Well, not so much. You could potentially have liability, for example, under a state law, such as a Texas House Bill 300 and where it was codified, or the Federal Trade Commission can come into play. So that's something just to be very aware of. General HIPAA items. The HIPAA privacy rule and security rule are still applicable during this pandemic. And that's something that even though OCR has said, yes, we'll use our enforcement discretion, it's something that everyone should be very conscientious of. The other part is that the privacy rule has always had an exception for healthcare providers to report certain diseases, whether it's an STD, or another communicable disease such as AIDS or hepatitis or conditions of an individual patient to various state and federal government agencies, such as a state Department of Health and Human Services. Some states have a requirement that it be given to a local type of public health authority or the Centers for Disease Control. The transmission of the patient's information still needs to occur in accordance with the security rules. So that's still very important. And this is something that has been emphasized and it should be emphasized because of three things. First, between March and April of 2020, there was a 400% uptick in cybersecurity attacks at the beginning of the pandemic. That should raise a flag for anyone. Secondly, not only in healthcare, but in really every industry, there was a transition to teleworking. And with teleworking comes individual homes who are not equipped in the same way, whether it's with unencrypted Wi-Fi or a level of Wi-Fi wi protection that is obsolete or not as secure. That just invites trouble. And it's an area that really needs to be addressed. The last area are the bulletins that have been released by government agencies, such as the Department of Homeland Security, CISA, and the FBI, regarding the more aggressive types of ransomware attacks, and that not only is there an increase, but the healthcare sector is being targeted specifically. The reason for that actually stems back over several years of various publications where it is widely known that protected health information carries a much higher black market value than regular, even credit card information. So that's just something to be aware of. And going back to our enforcement action against Excellus 
and that Blue Cross Blue Shield entity for 5.1 million, that's exactly what they're concerned about. And that's why everyone really should continue to stay vigilant regarding their HIPAA compliance. Other disclosures generally require the patient's consent or written authorization. So stemming back about a year, in general, except in the limited circumstances described elsewhere in this bulletin, affirmative reporting to the media or the public at large about an identifiable patient or the disclosure to the public or media of specific information about treatment of an identifiable patient, such as specific tests, test results, or details of a patient's illness, may not be done without the patient's written authorization. And this really lays the groundwork for what we're going to see in the employment scenario too. HHS's bulletin also emphasized the following. And again, this is nothing new. This has been around for a couple of decades now. So it's something everyone in healthcare should really know as second nature. First, treatment under the privacy rule. Covered entities may disclose without a patient's authorization protected health information about the patient as necessary to treat the patient or to treat a different patient. Again, you have to be very conscientious of this and there are bioethics concerns, but in that new privacy rule proposed changes that I mentioned at the outset, one area regarding treatment is the substance use disorder area. So this is a place where you're gonna see a lot more attention given. You're gonna see it with SAMHSA and 42 CFR part two, as well as HIPAA and then the 21st Century Cures Act. Public health activities. The HIPAA privacy rule recognizes the legitimate need for public health authorities and others responsible for ensuring public health and safety to have access to protected health information that is necessary to carry out their public health mission. Therefore, the privacy rule permits covered entities to disclose needed protected health information without an individual's authorization. To a public health authority, at the direction of the public health authority, to a foreign government agency, and the one that springs to mind for me is the World Health Organization, which by executive order, the United States has just rejoined, so that would be an excellent example of that. Disclosures to family and friends. Again, you always want to use the minimum necessary standard if a person has a designated representative, that's a little different. And the patient might be right there and say it's okay to disclose this information. But if a patient is incapacitated, whether they are under anesthesia or, for example, they can be incapacitated from drug use and or in a coma, things of that nature, that's a different animal. But again, you need to be conscientious about the press or the public at large. The police can have the law enforcement exception and another exception which applies to them as a first responder. So it's a little different. But covered entities should be doing the following, get verbal permission. And this is an area with 42 CFR 
part two, which relates to substance use disorder, that has always been a little different than HIPAA. And that law actually stems back to 1976, so 20 years before HIPAA passed. But otherwise be able to reasonably infer that the patient does not object when possible if the individual is incapacitated or not available. Covered entities may share information for these purposes if in their professional judgment, doing so is in the patient's best interest. Another point is that a provider may determine that it's in the best interest of an elderly patient to share relevant information with the patient's adult child, but generally could not share unrelated information about the patient's medical history without permission. And that overall tenor is the same really situation that we see applying to the opioid and substance use disorder treatments as well as COVID. Disaster relief disclosures, again, an exception already existed, but HHS did publish bulletins on this as well. A covered entity may share protected health information with a disaster relief organization such as the American Red Cross or UNICEF, for example. Disclosures to prevent a serious and imminent threat. Here we have healthcare providers may share patient information with anyone as necessary to prevent or lessen a serious and imminent threat to the health and safety of a person or the public consistent with applicable law. And this one really stands out to me because if you think about it, our constitutional right, right? It's basically to protect the health and welfare of our fellow citizens. So it's not surprising that HHS OCR, the sub-agency that is tasked with enforcing civil rights would share this position. But again, consistent with applicable law. Providers may disclose a patient's health information to anyone who is in a position to prevent or lessen. But again, you need to make sure that you're using the minimum necessary standard. Disclosures to the media, best advice is not to do it when it involves a single patient. One thing I want to distinguish because I've had this come up is that if a patient posts something on their own Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, website, whatever it is, for example, that they have COVID, that is not related to the covered entity. So what a patient says about themselves, whether it's I have breast cancer, I'm a breast cancer survivor, is very different than a hospital saying that Sally Smith is being treated for breast cancer, unless Sally Smith signs that written authorization saying that it is okay to do so. Minimum necessary, this is one that should always be considered, and especially as I mentioned before with the most recent bulletin in those web-based applications. Internally covered entities should continue to apply their role-based access policies to limit access to protected health information to only those workforce members who need to carry out their specific duties. And providers and clinicians should know by now not to go in and start snooping in other people's medical records or their colleagues' medical records. That's unconscionable. And again, that's where you can find yourself in criminal HIPAA territory. 
Now I want to move on to the workplace and basically the COVID-19 guidance is not a standard or regulation. It creates no new legal obligations. Uh, basically, it contains recommendations. Here, basically, OSHA developed a COVID-19 planning guidance, and this is something that should be updated and reviewed as necessary. For my own clients, what we did, because in a healthcare setting, some people are going into the office, some people are working remotely, we put up the OSHA bulletins and then also made them available either through a share file site or through the corporate email so that everyone was on the same page. Employers may have a duty to provide their employees with a workplace free from recognized hazards, likely to cause death or serious physical harm. As we know with COVID and especially in healthcare, this is really something you sign up for when you're in healthcare. As I mentioned, I worked in a hospital. I also sold spinal implants. So I was in the operating room for many years. And every time I went in, I knew that there was a chance that I could end up with something. So some of that basically is a an assumption of the risk, but it doesn't mean by any means that any organization can cut corners and make sure that the safety standards are not at an acceptable level. So what might workers be exposed to? This is something that should be specific to any given workplace. Sick individuals or those at particularly high risk of infection as I mentioned, the transmission of COVID-19 appears to be varying depending on the strand. Workers' individual risk factors could also pose an issue, pregnancy being one, older age being another. Occupational safety and health professionals use a framework called the hierarchy of controls to select ways of controlling workplace hazards. In other words, the best way to control a hazard is to systematically remove it from the workplace. Now, in a situation like a pandemic, that is not always something that is feasible. But again, you can use risk mitigation to achieve at least an ultimately acceptable outcome that's not gonna get you in violation of the law. ADA considerations are key because here, the ADA requires that any mandatory medical test of employees be job-related and consistent with business necessity. Well, now during COVID, because there's an interaction with a large number of people, whether it's a restaurant, whether it is a mom-and-pop business, a large corporate uh, box entity like Target or a healthcare setting, it's reasonable that employees, in fact, are tested. Applying this standard to the current circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic, employers may take steps to determine if employees entering the workplace have COVID-19 because an individual with the virus will pose a direct threat to the health and safety of others. Therefore, a company may choose to administer a COVID-19 testing to employees or require testing before they enter the workplace to determine if they have the virus. A similar scenario applies with the vaccine. And there's a, a lot of 
residual issues with the vaccine? What if the person can't get it, for example, or they're highly allergic or they're pregnant, whatever the case may be, that a medical professional has said, no, you can't have this. Then that's on a case-by-case basis. If it's a medical setting, that might be a very different discussion than in another type of workplace environment. But one thing that is very similar to HIPAA is that employers must not disclose the name of the employee testing positive to any other workforce member or to a member of another workforce, as that is confidential information under the ADA. Also, along those lines, you need to consider state laws, which may be broader than HIPAA or the ADA. Telework versus telehealth considerations. This is key, and again, it goes back to that February 2020 HHS bulletin. In an emergency situation, covered entities must continue to implement reasonable safeguards to protect PHI from unintentional uses and disclosures, and they must continue to apply the administrative physical and technical safeguards of the HIPAA security rules. Policies and procedures, I've gone through this with many of my own clients, and we really honed in on the disaster recovery to say, okay, how did this work when we found out about COVID, what needs to be tweaked, et cetera. Telecommuting or teleworking, we have a checklist that I make up and it's curtailed to my different clients. There's an attestation, training, installation of appropriate software, even for remote workers, and making sure that the Wi-Fi in a worker's home is up to the standard that it needs to be. Employers should always keep workforce members up to date on government directives as well as changes in hours and operation. And because of the change in administration and the rollout of the vaccine, this is an ideal time to really give an update. The 1135 waivers I've discussed on previous webinars, but I wanted to make sure that basically uh, what this means in relation to telehealth and other areas is that HHS has the authority because of the declaration of a public health emergency under section 319 of the Public Health Service Act that certain actions may be taken. And we've seen that with certain areas such as PPE, with vaccinations, and with the telehealth. But what the key phrase here is absent any determination of fraud and abuse. Telehealth and telemedicine on March 17th of 2020, the HHS Office for Civil Rights announced that it will pave the way and waive potential HIPAA violations for the good faith use of telehealth. So again, this is this enforcement discretion. As I talked about before that non permissible item is public facing video communication. Telehealth does apply to providers and a couple of items of note or our sites of service, make sure you're using the right code. Telehealth visits, which are distinct from e-visits and check-ins are considered the same as in-person visits and are paid at the same rate as in-person visits for an ENM portion, meaning the time, but you have to use a different code as it relates 
to the telehealth versus e-visit and check-in and make sure that you're documenting appropriately. And I just put these up here as examples on this chart. So what are some compliance nuggets? Well, you want patient access to medical records to continue, but you also need to be aware that this is a focal point of OCR. Enforcement discretion during COVID-19 pandemic is very narrowly tailored to certain situations and definitely does not mean ignoring HIPAA, as we saw by HHS's express language from that February 2020 bulletin. Everyone should take the suggested steps doing the WHO-5. I always feel like Bob Barker at the end of The Price is Right when I say this, but wash your hands, wipe down surfaces, social distance, wear a mask and sneeze or cough into your elbow. HIPAA still applies as well as other laws. Use the minimum necessary rule. Telecommuting requires utilization of the same technical, administrative, and physical safeguards as well as training. And finally, make sure that you use universal precautions. So with that, I think our time's about up, Catherine, and I just wanted to see if there were any questions. Yes, thank you so much, Rachel. That's wonderful. Um, we do have some questions. So um, let me go ahead and find those. Okay, so um, the first one that we have is, do you think the privacy rule enforcement trend may continue under this uh, new administration? I would say yes, because if we look at the laws and then our final rule going back to the Obama administration, which we all know the final omnibus rule, a lot of those privacy initiatives had already been reinforced. And so now we're just seeing a continuation and really the next generation of laws and regulations, including the 21st Century Cures Act and the new proposed changes to the privacy rule in order to keep up with the change in how healthcare is delivered and the ability for patients to have more of a voice in their care. Okay. All right, this is a, a great question. Um, how do providers balance access uh, with their cyber security attack concerns? So that is uh, a very prudent question. And mm -hmm. fundamentally, the first step is to make sure that all of the technical, administrative, and physical safeguards are in place at what I will call the corporate level. So whether that's a two-physician practice or a health system such as HCA, you really need to have all of those safeguards in place on that side of the equation first. Now, regarding the access, this is what gets us into the 21st Century Cures Act and the ability for patients to request the format that their electronic medical records are delivered to them. That's something that I think we'll see play out a little bit more and we may see a little bit more guidance as if I were a provider, I would be very leery of saying, sure, we'll get you your information in any form you want. What we do know is that consistently OCR has said non-public facing. So that's something that if the patient wants to post their own stuff, that's one 
issue. But if the patient says, I want this entity to post it, that's a completely different issue and that's something that cannot be done. So stay tuned on that. Okay, all right. Um, okay, here's another question. Um, in your opinion, how likely is HHS to use its enforcement discretion? I think that it will depend on the facts and the circumstances. And obviously, enforcement discretion can mean one of two things, saying you had a good faith basis. It was specifically for the signing up for COVID vaccine testing, right, or COVID vaccine administration. And you're okay, because you didn't use anything that was publicly facing and we're going to give you a pass even if you didn't go to the step of making sure it complied with HIPAA. The flip side of that is they could say, what did you do? We gave you these basic fundamental frameworks and yet you still violated that. So again, I think it's fact and circumstance specific. Okay, All right. And what are the five items every covered entity or a business associate can do to remain compliant? So this is one of my favorite questions. And there was an excellent article that the then OCR director was quoted uh, about by Law 360. And the article was entitled Low Hanging Fruit. And the five items, and I always make sure my clients have a checklist when they vet business associates or subcontractors is an annual comprehensive risk analysis, making sure business associate agreements are in place, having adequate, comprehensive, and up-to-date policies and procedures, making sure workforce members undergo annual training, and finally, ensuring that it, the PHI is encrypted both at rest and in transit. Okay, wonderful. All right. Um, Thank you so much, Rachel. Do you have any other words of advice you would like to leave with us today? So the words of advice are to really look at government websites regularly during this time. The CDC is publishing quite a bit as well as HHS and OCR and ONC. And that will help with HIPAA compliance across a lot of different fronts. And finally, I wish everyone continued health and safety throughout this time and would like to thank you, Catherine, and First Healthcare Compliance for once again having me as your guest. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Very, very much appreciate you coming on and um, telling us about these changes and updates and everything. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Yes. So. Um, attendees please use the contact information on the screen for any questions um, that you might further have uh, or if you think of them later please send questions to us and we'll forward them on to Rachel and please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast but probably sooner and there's no need to request it uh, you can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 
seven eight. And thank you for joining us.